Winners never quit and quitters never win. We've all heard that lie before. Of course we have to quit things that aren't working. The key is to notice it sooner. In this episode, how to recognize when you should quit and how to get there a lot faster. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 607. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. How do we know when to walk away from something? How do we know when to quit? It's something a lot of us struggle with, of being able to frame that in a way that's effective, that's objective. And yet, of course, our emotions get in the way so much. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert that's going to help us to think about how we can quit at the right time and utilizing some tactical practices that will help us to make better decisions. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Annie Duke. She is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space, as well as senior partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, a seed stage venture fund. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, she has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. During her career, Annie won a World Series of Poker Bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. She retired from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional poker player, she was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She's a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. She also serves on the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. She's the author of Quit! The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie, what a pleasure to have you back. Thank you for having me back. Well, I thinking about walking away from something, I can't help but having read this book, think back to my childhood, my parents had a cassette tape of Kenny Rogers' Greatest Hits ad <laughs> that was in the car all the time when we would drive to Grandma and Grandpa's house. And of course, The Gambler is a song that I could pretty much recite the lyrics from memory because of hearing it so many hundreds of times as a kid. And the famous line, of course, is you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And you point out in the book, three of those four are about quitting, right? Fold them, walk away, know when to run. You know this gambling reference better than anyone because, of course, as I mentioned in your bio, you were a professional poker player. What do professional poker players know about quitting that the amateurs miss? Well, what the amateurs really miss is that you have to fold a lot more than you hold in poker. So Kenny Rogers is actually right. 75% of that refrain is is about folding. And that's actually about the percentage of the time that a professional poker player is going to fold their initial two cards that they get dealt in the game of Texas Hold'em. Whereas an amateur will fold less than half the time. So that's a really big difference. When we think about like, or at least let me say, when I think about what's the most important skill that differentiates great poker players from amateurs, it's this 
willingness to exercise this option to fold. They're just folding a lot more. And that's occurring in a few ways. So Mm. for the amateurs, what they're thinking is like, well, you know, I remember when I played like that seven and deuce and then I folded it and then I would have made a full house. And that's so sad for me. So now I realize like no matter what hand you have, you could maybe win the pot. And it's, but that doesn't matter because it's a problem of, is it worth your while, right? Is it positive return on investment in the same way that like, I suppose any stock you invest in could take off, but that doesn't mean it's worth your investment. Any company you invest in could take off. It doesn't mean it's worth your investment. Same thing with poker hands. So that really pro players really understand this. The other thing is that once you get involved in a hand, so that means that you've decided to play it initially. What that means is that you've now started to bet. So you have chips in the pot now, and those are have already been invested in the pot. What you see with amateur players is a real difficulty in folding kind of like midway through a hand. And I think that that's for a variety of reasons. Probably the most significant, they actually say out loud, which is I had too much money in the pot. How could I possibly fold? I needed to protect the chips that I had already bet. Uh. But if you keep going, maybe some miracle will happen and you'll actually like somehow win the pot and you'll get those chips back out of the pot. So that's a little bit what they mean, like is I needed to still give myself a chance to win them back. Again, that's something that elite players are much less likely to do because what they understand is it's not about the chips that you've already bet. It's about the chips that you're about to bet. And is the situation I'm in right now appropriate for me to bet these chips versus waiting, just folding, cutting my losses and waiting until another hand comes along that might be a better opportunity and I can take those chips and bet those there. So in the end, basically what you see from amateurs is they kind of want to be sure that their hand has no chance of winning before they're willing to fold. And if you wait until you're sure that your hand has no chance of winning, that's a really good way to go broke. Yeah. And it's certainly possible that some miraculous thing can happen, and I'm sure occasionally it does, but you're more than likely, if you have a bad hand, just to end up spending more money, right? And it's interesting thinking about gambling. I think most of us, any of us who have ever walked into a casino for fun, have heard the advice, quit while you're ahead. And I think it's interesting you you call that out in the book and say that's not necessarily good advice, is it? Well, it's actually really bad advice because, look, here's the thing. This idea of like quitters never win, winners never quit, at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Those are all really bad advice. And so it's yeah. quit while you're ahead. And the reason is that all of that advice, first of all, isn't getting to the heart of the matter about when you should quit. So let's get to the heart of the matter. Uh, You should quit things that are no longer worthwhile, and you should stick to things that are worthwhile. So I don't care if you're ahead or not, right? If what you're doing is worth your time, if your positive expected value, if you're gaining ground towards your goals, I want you to stick to it, whether you're behind or ahead. It's That's somewhat irrelevant, right? But if it's not worthwhile, I want you to quit. It's about, is it worthwhile or is it not worthwhile? That's the real heart of the matter about when it's correct to quit or stick. So I I think I can give you, I think I can give you a pretty good example of this. Please. So let's imagine that I owe you $100. Okay, so now you're ahead, right? Yeah. And I say to you, okay, Dave, I'm a gambler. So I can either give you this $100 or we can flip a coin, double or nothing. Heads, you win 200 tails. I don't have to give you anything. What do you want to do here? Do you want to take the hundred or do you want to flip the coin? 
I'm probably going to take the 100 in most situations. Okay. Now, the good news for you there is that the expected value is exactly the same. So double or nothing on $100 on a 50-50 coin flip, if, if you did that over and over again, every coin flip, you would win $100. And I'm going to give you $100. So it's a, it's about the same decision. One just is riskier, sure. right? One, one, we're adding risk to the equation. Okay. So now I want to give you a different scenario. You owe me $100. But okay. I'm a gambler, so I'm gonna I'm gonna offer you this proposition. You can either give me the hundred dollars, or we can flip a coin, double or nothing. What does your gut tell you you want to do there? My gut tells me like, why not take a chance that maybe I don't mm-hmm. have to owe you anything? That's right. Okay, so now we can see a quitting and sticking thing, right? So when you're winning the hundred, you want to quit, take the hundred, and not gamble. When you're losing the hundred, you want to keep going. You want to persevere. You don't want to quit. And just give me the hundred. You want to keep things going. Hopefully luck will turn your way. Now, again, as I said, that's kind of interesting, right? You're risk seeking when you're, when you're losing or when you're in the losses and you're risk averse when you're in the gains, you want to quit while you're ahead. You want to stick when you're behind. But in these two cases that I gave you, the proposition is the same. One is just riskier. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting that the emotion like comes into play so quickly of like, what do I have to lose versus what do I have to gain? And thinking about that differently, it it, it does start to color judgment. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, obviously, I just gave you like a little thought experiment, right? So now let's take it like to real life. So there's a study that Alex Emas did with some collaborators where he was looking at retail investors. So it's very common with retail investors that when they buy, a say, a stock, that they'll put in both a stop loss order and a take gain order. And what those are is basically saying, like, let's say you buy the stock at 50, you would say, if the stock gets to 60, so this would be the take gain order. If the stock gets to 60, I'm going to put an order in that's going to automatically sell the stock for me. And likewise, a stop loss order would be, you know, I'm buying the stock for 50. If it goes down to 40, I will automatically sell. So what Alex Amos found was that people canceled both orders, both types of orders, but for different reasons. So people would sell the stock prematurely when they were ahead. So they would have a stop loss order in of say 60 when they bought a stock at 50, which was designed to say like, this is what I think the sort of upside of the stock is. And if I hit that ceiling, then I'm gonna sell because beyond that, I think that I'm not getting value. So they sort of worked out when they wanna sell it but the stock would get to like 54 and they'd sell it before they ever got to 60. Huh. So you can see there this thing, the same thing that's happening with this $100 bet, right? Which is they've, they've got this win on paper and they don't want to keep the risk on, right? They don't want to keep gambling. They want to take that win and turn it into realized money, a realized gain, a sure gain. And so they sell it early. So that's that quit while you're ahead advice, right? Yeah. Now, on the flip side, they also cancel the stop loss order, but it's so that they can keep gambling. (laughs) So let's say that I buy it at 50. I've got a stop loss order at 40. They'll get to 40 and they'll cancel the order to sell and they'll keep holding the stock trying to get their money back. Hmm. So here's where we can see that the sort of horror of this advice, like if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I guess that's what the people who are losing with the $40 stock now, but also quit while you're ahead. Why that's so bad? Because we already, those aphorisms are telling you to to make mistakes that we're already making. Yeah. 
And there's such an element here of, there's an element of objectivity, but there's also an element of timing. And oftentimes we know we need to quit something, but we don't necessarily time it correctly. And and one of the things that I really appreciate that you flesh out in your work and your research is like some things that can really help us to do a better job at timing things a little bit more objectively to help us make better decisions. And one of them is, in fact, one of the tools you mentioned is something called a kill criteria. What does that look like? Yeah. So here's the problem that we have as decision makers on the sort of bias against quitting side. Once we've put time or effort or cap money or attention into something, just like the poker players who say, I had too much already invested or I needed to protect that money, it becomes really, really hard for us to walk away if we have not thought about it in advance. Because the weight of those sort of losses that we're feeling or that worry about waste is too heavy on us to be rational about the decision in the moment. So this is where kill criteria come into play, which is basically saying, if I know I'm not going to be a good decision maker in the moment when I'm actually facing down that quitting decision, then I ought to think about it in advance and try to figure out what are the signals that I could see in the future that would tell me that it's time to walk away. So obviously, like a stop loss is a very good example of that. Here's an example from a sales team that I worked with. So salespeople are super gritty. Yeah. They try to win every single deal come what may. Now, that's a good trait as long as the deal they're trying to win is worthwhile, right? You want them to really be hungry for those worthwhile deals, but you don't want them to spend their time on deals that aren't worthwhile. And this is a really important thing to really understand deeply about quitting, it's because the time and attention that they're spending on the deals that aren't worthwhile is time and attention that they can't spend on deals that are worthwhile. So when you stick to things that aren't worthwhile, it's slowing your progress down. It's actually making you achieve your goals more slowly. So you you always, what you want to do, like if you're, if you have a sales force, you want them to be qualifying things out as quickly as possible. And then the things that are worth pursuing, you want them to pursue with dogged Mm. determination. Indeed. All right. So this is what we did with this group of sellers. I sent out a prompt to them, which was, okay, imagine that you generated a lead through an RFP or RFI and it's six months from now and you lost the deal. Looking back, you realize there were early signals that you weren't going to win the deal. What were they? So like, how would you like, give me an example of something you might answer to that prompt. Oh gosh. I'm, I, I know exactly what it is because I ran into the same thing when I worked at Dale Carnegie. Part of my job was sales. It was someone not scheduling the after the initial meeting we'd have with them mm-hmm. when they had an RFP or whatever, them not scheduling the meeting for us to review a proposal with them at the first meeting. If they didn't schedule for the second meeting right then, that was a sure indicator that they were not going to move forward. Fantastic. So that would have been one of the things that you would have written down, right? Some of the other things that our sellers wrote down, so they were selling a a software product, was in the first meeting, the only thing that the prospect wanted to talk about was pricing. Hmm. So having been a seller yourself, would you consider that a bad signal? Yes. Right? Because they don't want, they don't care about your product. So you're probably a stalking horse in that situation, right? Yeah. And they're likely just comparing, they're out shopping for lowest price from a number of vendors. Right, exactly. Here was another one. In the first few meetings, we could not get a decision maker in the room. Mm. So that's a pretty adverse signal. 
Yeah. Okay. So we get, we get this list like yours, like in the room that w- during the first meeting, they don't schedule the second meeting. Good example. They only talk about price. You can't get a decision maker in the room. So we, they generated about 40 of these signals. Right. And then for each of those signals, they said, well, what would you do if you saw this? Like how strong a signal is it? So they said, for example, for, they only want to talk about price. They decided that that was enough of a signal in itself to kill the deal. For not being able to get an executive in the room, they would offer up executive alignment at the next meeting. If the prospect said no to that, then they would kill the deal. So you could imagine like in your situation, if they don't schedule in that meeting, you can lob into them one time. Would you like to schedule the second meeting? And if they don't get back to you or they don't really, within a certain period of time, you can just kill the deal. So that might be a second action that you would take, or maybe you would consider that strong enough to just kill right away. And yeah. Not pursue. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I wouldn't have called it a kill criteria at the time, but I it became such a powerful indicator not scheduling that second meeting that if the schedule if the second meeting wasn't scheduled, I would never write the proposal. I would do a follow up right. message or two, and I would wait to see if the s- second meeting got scheduled. It almost never did, but when it did, then I'd write the proposal. But I would never because for me the biggest thing was my time. If I was right. going to spend hours on a proposal that no one was ever going to actually consider, that was a that was a really poor use of my time. So yeah, that was definitely a, a kill criteria for me. And so, right, exactly. So that was a kill criteria. So wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to experience that a billion times? Yeah. If instead you knew in advance that that was a kill criteria, think about how much time you would have saved. Yeah. Yeah. And it got so bad <laughs> or good, depending on how you look at it, toward the end of my Carnegie career that I sometimes didn't even follow. Like if they didn't set the meeting at that meeting, that moment, I sometimes didn't even follow up with an email or Perfect. a phone call because it became such a good predictor that I would, if they reached out to me, great, we'd continue, but I would move on to the next thing. Right. And I'm willing to bet that you had peers who were continuing to ping, who were writing the proposal, Oh yeah, who were still saying they thought they could win the deal. And Absolutely. you're seeing what a waste of your time. Yep. Right. So what the kill criteria we're doing was we now set that out for that sales force, right? So we have this set of kill criteria. And now notice we're asking for these things in absence of them facing down a deal. We're not asking them as they're having to face, should I qualify somebody out or continue on? We're just asking them in the abstract. Now we create this list of kill criteria and now that becomes part of deal review. So one of the things that we need to do is reward people for quitting when it's correct. And so as part of deal review that, you know, you're going through the kill criteria and if someone's saying they already have a competitor installed and they only want to talk to me about price, but I know I can win the deal. Leadership is saying, no, that's bad. You've just satisfied two kill criteria. You need to qualify them out. So when they come to them now and they say, well, I qualified them out early. Why? There's no postmortem. It's just, well, because they had a competitor installed and they only want to talk about price. And then leadership goes, that's great. And that's literally the end of the conversation. So there isn't like the third degree about why didn't you win the deal? Because this is all kind of thought about in advance. So that allows them to be qualifying leads out early and and then concentrating their effort on the deals that matter. So this type of idea of sort of advanced thinking, thinking about what those signals are going to be in the future and making some commitments to what you're going to do when you see them is really, really powerful. And one thing that people will say to me, and I I don't, is, well, to your point, right? Like if you kind of know that them not scheduling something in the first meeting is bad, then why do you need to write it down in advance? 
And the answer is that all of your peers were still trying to pursue those deals because when you're in the moment of it, that idea that I failed to win, right? That idea that I had to close that account having lost it is really awful for us. And so we'll convince ourselves that if we just write a good enough RFP, right? If we just ping them a few more times, we're going to be able to get that meeting and then they're going to read the RFP and it's going to be the best RFP ever. And we're actually going to be able to win that deal. We just are too good at rationalizing away the signal and believing that we can still turn it around. And that's not good for anybody. So that's why kill criteria is so incredibly powerful. Yeah. And speaking to the power of writing it down, you say the best criteria combine two things, a state and a date. What does that right. what does that sound like? So we need deadlines because and I'm sure that you've seen this before with somebody who's thinking about leaving their job, for example, or thinking about leaving a relationship that you have a conversation with them. They say, I'm unhappy. You say, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Maybe, oh, we're going to couples counseling or I'm going to talk to my boss. And you see them three months later and they're saying, I'm thinking about quitting. What, what's going on? I'm really unhappy. Well, did you talk to your boss? Yeah, I, they, they promised me it would change. Okay, so what are you doing? Well, I don't know. I've got to think about it. I'm not ready to make a decision. And the, the, two years later, you're having the same conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure, you've, I'm sure you've experienced this. Oh, yeah. So what we want to do is set deadlines on these things. Because if we don't, we can just get into these cycles of constantly rationalizing away. So that's what the date piece is, right? So we can think about like the kill criteria that you set, right? First meeting, that's a date. And the state is they did not ask to schedule another meeting. Okay, so that's that's a, combining a state and a date, right? For people who are thinking about, like if, if it crosses your mind that maybe you're unhappy in the job that you're in, and you're thinking that maybe you wanna leave, you would wanna set a state and a date. And you would get to that by saying, well, how long do I think that, like if I were giving my own self-advice, how long would I think that it would be reasonable for me to stay in this position, do the things that I kind of needed to do to see if I could turn it around and be okay with that, right? So let's say you decide, well, I'm going to do this for another quarter. So that's your date, mm-hmm. another quarter. And the state would be whatever you wrote down, right? Like what are the signals that would tell me I turned it around? What are the signals that would tell me that I'm still unhappy and things actually haven't changed? So you write those things down. That gives you a set of kill criteria and some benchmarks where if you exceed them, you would stay. If you don't exceed them, you would leave. And that's going to be more likely to get you to that decision sooner so that you can free up to go do do something that that is better for you. Now, I, I, wa- I do want to be clear when it comes to jobs that some people don't have the option to quit. Right. And so I, I do, I do want to make sure that I say I understand that some people don't have the option to quit. Quitting is really a luxury item for some people when it comes to things like jobs. And so then isn't it all the more like, isn't it a bigger shame then if you if you have this luxury item and you don't actually make use of it? Right. So mm. we're trying to make sure that we're using the things that we have available to us, the tools that we have available to us. And honestly, if you have the ability to quit because you know you have other options available to you, you're pretty lucky and you ought to take advantage of that luck. There's a chapter in your book titled, Find Someone Who Loves You But Doesn't Care About Your Feelings, which is great. And you make the invitation to find a quitting coach and you highlight the practices of Ron Conway, an angel investor. And I think how he approaches this is really fascinating. Could you share that with us? Yeah. So. When we do something like kill criteria, we set a state and a date. What we're really doing for ourselves is we're getting us 
ourselves out of the facing the decision down. In other words, we're making that decision when we're not in it, when we're not in the decision, right? right? We're doing this in advance. Another way to get yourself out of it is to get somebody else's point of view. Because if you think about the things that kind of prevent us from quitting, things like sunk costs, right? What we've already put into something, making us want to continue and put in more for fear that we've wasted that stuff. If I'm thinking about quitting something, I have sunk costs, but Dave, you don't because you're just an outside observer to me, right? So if I'm talking to you about my relationship, you haven't put time into my relationship I have. If I'm developing a product, I've put money into it. I've put my own effort. I've put my attention into it, but you haven't. So you aren't as weighed down by a lot of the biases that are going to stop me from quitting. Sure. Right. So, and and I'm sure that you've seen this before where you see somebody, a friend, and you can see very clearly like their relationship isn't really healthy or or good for them or the misery that they're feeling in a job when they come around to you on the second year to have that conversation with you. And you, you kind of know, like they should really have quit a long time ago. Because we can see it in other people much more clearly than we can see it in ourselves. And so if that's the case, that means other people can see it really clearly in us in a way that we can't. And we ought to recruit them into the decision in order to help to give us advice about whether we should stick to things or quit. And this is particularly powerful to get an outside opinion when you combine it with something like kill criteria. So Ron Conway is the founder of SV Angel, one of the most successful angel investors of all time. And I think that people have an idea about venture capitalists, and I think this is true of many of them, just not all, that they hold a big portfolio of companies. And so all they want every founder to do is keep going until there's no hope, because that would be good for their portfolio, for them to keep going and for each founder to keep going until there's no hope. But Ron Conway doesn't feel like that. He What he says is, I've got a certain amount of capital that I can invest. And if I can see really clearly that one of my founders is not working on the right project, right? Can't find product market fit. They're not get, gaining any traction. And I can see that it's something where they're not going to gain traction in the future. And he would have the expertise to be able to spot that. Then it's better for, for everybody, certainly the founder and certainly me, for him to stop, return the capital to the investors, right? I can then put that capital somewhere else. And free this person up who's clearly brilliant, who clearly has stick to so that they can go on to, to found a different company, to do something else that's going to change the world or change their own life. And as he says, because their life is too short to be, to be continuing to work on something that isn't worthwhile when they could be working on something that is worthwhile. It's such a waste of the precious time that we have on this planet to continue working on something that isn't going to go anywhere. So he feels a real obligation. And also, it's a good strategy in terms of his own portfolio to help these people to see that they should return the capital, shut the venture down, and move on to something else. So when he does see that, he'll go to the founder and he'll say, look, Dave, let's agree that things aren't going that well. And the founder will usually agree that things aren't going well, but as you can probably intuit, they also follow it with, but I know I can turn it around. Right. Right. Like, I know it's just around the corner. Like, we've got another product release coming. There, we're in negotiations with this one really big customer. I, I know we're going to close them. You know the kinds of things that people say when they say they can turn it around. And, he, and here's the real trick that he uses. He agrees with them. So notice, like he can see, I don't think this is going to turn around. But he doesn't, he doesn't actually disagree with the founder. He says, okay, 
I agree with you. You're brilliant. I think you can turn it around. So how long do you think it will be before we can see hard evidence that you've turned it around? Right. So notice now he's he's coaching them into kill criteria. Right. So they'll agree on maybe like a quarter. They'll say, "Okay, great. So at the end of that quarter, what are the benchmarks that you're going to have hit that are going to show us that you've turned it around? What are the things that you might see that will tell us that you haven't? So maybe it's that they have actually closed that big account or that with the new product release, they started gaining traction and you would quantify what that traction would look like, so on and so forth. But they they sort of figure that stuff out together. And then Ron says to them, great, I'll talk to you again in three months and we'll see how things are. It's the state and date again that you mentioned earlier. That's exactly right. And he's helping to coach them because he can see something that they can't see, right? And so now they come in three months and if they haven't achieved it, he helps them to shut the company down and they're more likely to do it. And if they have achieved it, he says, great, super happy for you, keep going. And he really takes pride in in the fact that he does get founders to stop. And, you know, they often go on to do great things. And I, I know it's really counterintuitive for somebody who is a venture capitalist that that would be sort of their point of greatest pride, but it's his point of greatest pride. And there's such a element here of trust and permission that he's built and I, I really take that to heart. And that's one of the the invitations you make is that find someone who can do that for you because that trust, that permission is really key. Because and I was thinking about what you said earlier that the we've all had that situation of someone comes to us and it's like, okay, it's the same story again I heard a year ago when I sat down with this friend. And then then someone does something and they do make a change. And then they go to talk to their friends about it. Wow, I finally left this job or I left this relationship. And people say to them like, oh, yeah, I never <laughs> I never thought that was a good fit for you. Like, why didn't you tell right. me? And the reality That's is, right. is that like most of the time we're not going to say anything, even if it is a friend or or a close, close connection, because if we don't explicitly feel like we have permission to do that. I mean, I think that's where the power here of the invitation to invite someone to do this for you is really key. Yeah. So you notice Ron Conway kind of like stealth mode gets permission because he says to the founders, how long will it be until we see the signs that you've turned it around? Let's say it's three months. They set those kill criteria and he says, okay, so we're going to talk about it in three months. And can we agree that if you haven't actually hit these benchmarks, that it's time to shut it down. So he's, he's including permission in that conversation, right? And he recognizes that he's not really going to have permission in that moment. So he's shifting to get permission to have that conversation in the future. What that tells us, and and I, this is a great quote from Daniel Kahneman, is you have to find somebody who loves you but doesn't care about hurt feelings in the moment. Mm-hmm. And we have to give permission. We have to tell them, you're not going to hurt my feelings in the moment. What I really want you to tell me is what's in my long-term best interest. Because if you think about why wouldn't you tell a friend that you see that they're in a relationship that's not going well, because you don't want them to be mad at you. You don't want them to have hurt feelings. You don't want the, them, you know, that's going to feel bad for them in the moment. But yeah, it's going to feel bad for them in the moment, but it's going to be better for them in the long run because they're not going to be stuck in something that isn't making them happy. It's going to free them up to go do other things that will make them happy. The thing is, unless they've given you permission to say that, it's really hard to say it. And so, you know, what I'll say when people are are saying to me, talking about quitting decisions is I always say, do I have your permission? Like, are you asking me for my actual real advice? Can I speak freely? Is that okay? So I'll seek the permission because I want to understand what the nature of the conversation is. And and often people will say, no, just tell me things are going to be okay. And I'll be like, all right, things are going to be okay. That's fine. (laughs) Like all good. 
So I think that generally you don't want to be on the side of like asking someone that you're giving advice to if you have permission. It's better if you as the advice seeker just says like, I'm coming to you for help, Dave. I need you to tell me like the truth. I want you to tell me what you think is in my long-term best interest. I promise I'm not going to get upset, even if it's something that you think that I don't want to hear, because I'm telling you, you have permission to tell me. You clearly did an extraordinary amount of research for this book. I mean, there's so many incredible examples we're not even getting to. I am curious, experts, leaders are always learning, they're growing. As you did the research for this book, as you talk to folks, as you have spoken about this and coached folks, what's something in the last year or two of doing this that you've changed your mind on? So I would say the biggest thing that I changed my mind on was on goals. So when I came into this project, I kind of thought his goals is just like good things right? You want to have clearly defined goals that you're trying to reach toward, whether it's OKRs like that, because we know that the research is very strong, that goals will get you to stick to things and achieve things that are worthwhile. That is 100% true. What I had never thought about, though, is that there's a downside to that. So once you set a goal, you're setting a finish line. And the thing about those finish lines is that they're fixed. So we set a goal because we have some idea of cost-benefit analysis, right? Like, what are we trying to gain? What are we willing to cost ourselves in order to achieve those things? We then come up with some goal that we're trying to achieve. And then we just kind of head toward the goal. And if there's one thing that you know from studying quitting, it's that as you start to get signals that maybe that goal should be adjusted, we don't adjust the goal. The goal becomes fixed. It becomes like the object of our desire as opposed to a proxy for the stuff we were trying to gain and the stuff we were willing to cost ourselves to do it. And then on top of that, we have this problem, which is that cognitively, progress along the way matters very little. What matters is how short we are of the finish line. That's the thing that bothers us. So it doesn't matter like if you run 16 miles of a marathon, if you have to quit that and you feel like you're a loser because you were eight miles short. So of course, that's going to cause you to keep running, like even if you're dehydrated or whatever. And so I think we have to be very careful that goals have a a good side and a bad side. And we have to be very careful about that bad side of goals and start to create goals that are more flexible, which we can do through the use of things like kill criteria. Like that's going to help us make those goals flexible. Like I'm going to keep running this marathon unless the medical tent advises me that I should stop running. I'm going to keep going with this project unless it's over budget by X percent and I've blown the timeline by more than 50%, right? Whatever those things are, add that to your goal, unless my values change. That's another thing that you could come up with. Like if I find out, I think it's going to make me happy to pursue this goal. But if I discover that I'm not happy, then I'm going to evaluate that and I'm going to quit. That would be an unless that you could add to a goal. And I think if we don't do that, I think that goals can really get us into trouble when it comes to this kind of wasting our time on things that aren't worthwhile and continuing sometimes at grave danger. Annie Duke is the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me back. I, you know, I always feel like when I come back on a podcast, it should be like Saturday Night Live where I get one of those velvet jackets with the number on it. I'll do my best. Maybe a tote bag or something. There you go. Thanks, Annie.
If this conversation was helpful, a few other episodes I'd recommend for you. One of them is episode 476, How to Pivot Quickly. Steve Blank was my guest on that episode. Steve has worked with so many successful entrepreneurs over the years and has helped develop the practice that many have heard of, minimum viable product or minimum viable service. And the entrepreneurs who, at least the ones who are most successful, often learn to pivot quickly when they need to. There's an element, of course, of quitting what is not working in that. In episode 476, Steve walks us through what some of the most effective entrepreneurs do and gives us examples that we can utilize in a process for how to pivot when we do need to pivot. It's an important competency for almost every leader. Episode 476 is your framework for how to do it. I'd also recommend my past conversation with Annie, episode 499, The Way to Make Better Decisions. Ever since we recorded that conversation, I think about decision-making differently in terms of probability and the decision trees that Annie talks about in her previous book. So much more rich, so much more helpful than just thinking about a traditional pros and cons list episode 499 for more of that. And then, of course, in any situation where we're quitting something, there's an element of confidence that we need. Episode 533, I'd also recommend How to Build Confidence. Katie Milkman, an expert researcher on the topic, and uh, walks us through so many practical things we can do to do a better job with our own confidence. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access access to a ton of the free resources and benefits inside of the membership. One of those is the episode library. I have been cataloging all of the episodes for years, since 2011 when we started, under different topics that will be helpful to you right now. One of the topics is decision-making. Maybe you have a tough decision in front of you now, or maybe you're thinking about how do I or we as an organization do a better job at being more intentional with our decision-making. Of course, today's conversation a key element of that. Many other aspects of looking at decision-making, including the previous conversation with Annie and many other episodes in the past, you can find inside of the episode library. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. You can track down decision-making and all the episodes we've done on this over the years. Plus, of course, all the other topics, dozens of topics that are important for leaders almost every day to be thinking about and to find the thing that's most relevant for you right now. I look forward to seeing you inside of our free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Christina Maslach to the show. She is the leading expert on burnout, has been researching it for many decades. She's joining us to explore the mindset that we need as leaders in order to address burnout in our organizations. Such an important topic. Join me for that conversation with Christina next week, and I'll see you back on Monday.